0: Misinformation and cyber warfare. It's perhaps fitting that this is one of the most complicated topics to cover. After all, when and where do we start? Vladimir Putin has given several reasons for his invasion of Ukraine. This is one of them.
1: We will be aiming at demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine.
0: But Russia's claims about Nazis in Ukraine are a mix of falsehoods and distortions. For a start, Ukrainians are not being held hostage by Nazis, Their president's Vladimir Zelensky. He's Jewish, he has relatives who died in the Holocaust, and he's president because he won 73% of the vote in 2019. I've got a friend in Kharkiv who was telling me that they were recording bombs dropping around them to send to Russian family members, who all said, oh, this is Ukrainians bombing their own city, and they just wouldn't believe her. The effect of misinformation is, is remarkable. To an extent, we've probably all felt the impact of it. There have probably been times where we've read something and taken it at face value and not interrogated it at all. In this episode, I'll be looking at these tactics of misinformation, why they've worked so well over the last eight years, and why, like so many other things, they've been completely upended by Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. Special edition of Chatham House's podcast, looking at the far reaching impacts of war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. Misinformation and cyber warfare are some of those phrases that are thrown about without really being interrogated, especially in relation to Russia. In this episode, in order to better understand it, we'll be talking to Oxford Information Lab CEO Emily Taylor, Chatham House Senior Consulting Fellow Keir Giles and former chair of the DCMS Select Committee and host of Infotagion podcast, Damian Collins, MP. First, I want to understand what modern misinformation and propaganda means.
2: I'm Emily Taylor, CEO of Oxford Information Labs and the editor of Chatham House's Journal of Cyber Policy.
0: So Emily, as simply as possible, where can we draw the line between misinformation and information that we don't like?
2: The, the role of propaganda is really important in warfare. Obviously, that's a that's a truism. And the the distinction between the different categories of propaganda, whereas you know, true stuff but just sort of packaged in a very appealing way. Then there's things that are just happen to be false, but it you know non-intentional. And then there's disinformation and psychological operations or psyops where it's, it's false information and the intent is to mislead. And actually what we're seeing in the current Ukraine conflict situation is a blend of all of these things. And so, you know, the, the whole propaganda piece, um, it brings in multiple factors and disinformation and the use of technology to amplify that disinformation is a, is a key component, but it's not the only component. I was just in the Czech Republic a couple of weeks ago. and What really struck me was that the people I was speaking to there, whether it was the students I was teaching or experts in this area, they made no distinction between the sort of cyber attacks that we would think of as like the hack and leak or um, attacks on critical infrastructure and disinformation. They saw them all as information operations, all part and parcel of the same thing.
0: How long have these tactics been used by Russia and have they always been an important part of their defensive and offensive tactics?
2: I was really struck at uh, at the university in the Czech Republic and the students um, brought up a, um, a 1980s KGB defector called Yuri Bezmenov. And it turns out that this, this interview is, uh, is a preamble to a recently issued video game. So, but he's describing this. He's saying, well, everybody thinks the KGB does spying. About 15% of our activities were spying and the rest, the 85% was on PSYOPs. And it's about, and he talks about this as having a very long time horizon. It taking about fifteen to twenty years to demoralise a population, because then you're getting to every every bit of their educational cycle. And you know, one of the disconnects and the sort of senses of like, how can this be, is when when people are speaking to relatives and friends in the Russian Federation, and they literally will not believe. That what we're seeing or having reported is true. They absolutely yes. will not accept it. So why is that? How could that? How could that be so effective?
0: What did Russia's tactics look like in the build-up to the war, and what can we learn about their aims from what they were doing?
2: So hmm. the Russian population has really been warmed up over the last six months or so prior to the uh, to the invasion, with a high volume of. Russian language disinformation aimed at that domestic audience. You know, these tropes of nazi- denazification, you know, the, the the language, the intentional use of of um of, of the sort of Nazi, uh, completely untrue Nazi tropes there that warm up that domestic op- um um audience to supporting or at least not objecting to the invasion. And then um and then a spike in English language, German language and other languages, um, disinformation just prior to the invasion itself. So particularly striking in Germany, um, according to research by Semantic Visions in, in, based in Prague, they were, they were saying, well, there's a relatively low volume, but it just kicks up really exponentially just three weeks before the invasion. And a very high proportion of it um, is disinformation aimed at influencing the federal government's position in relation to the war. So we're seeing, you know, in a, in a way, if you think of, you know, we think of the Russian disinformation um, machine as highly organized and highly strategic. And that is true. Mm. But that seemed quite last minute to me. <laughs> You know, three weeks to, to really try to influence an entire population, whether it's in Germany or f- former Soviet states, is, looks a bit last minute, but I think it's still been extremely effective in some, in some areas. And that's because of the blend of propaganda, you know, having websites that are the origins of this material, and then very astute. Manipulation of social media platforms, both to micro-target in order to accentuate social divisions, and also to amplify the messages.
0: It's been it's been said that this is the first social media war. Do do you think this actually means anything, or do you think this is just a snappy media phrase?
2: I I don't think that's that's accurate in any way. And social media is part of movements, social movements, or upheaval. Um, I think that if we go back to the Arab Spring in 2011, when of course the social media platforms were the darlings of democratic states, because it, you know the Arab Spring was described as the Facebook Revolution, yeah. and everybody thought it was wonderful. And then, of course, the you know the massive shockwave for uh, Western liberal democracies were the U.S. elections and the Brexit elections in 2016, mm. where it's now fairly accepted that. Um, the Russian state played a major role in um, in electoral disinformation and in yeah. voter suppression, micro-targeting. and actually speaking to people on on this visit to the Czech Republic, their sense of of the West's reaction to to the 2016 events was that this was incredible that there there was a lot of naivety and that the West were really a soft target because they just couldn't literally couldn't believe that this was happening. And you saw Mark Zuckerberg, you know, his immediate response back in twenty sixteen was like, That's a crazy idea
0: that the Russians
2: had infiltrated these platforms.
0: So we've heard a lot about the how, but I want to get to grips with the why. I also want to understand why, after all these decades of experience, Russia's attempts at using misinformation to destabilize the West and Ukraine haven't worked. Here's Keir Giles.
1: Well, there are a number of reasons for that. Why does Russia do information warfare? The simple answer is because so often it works. Russia's found that information is a good way of achieving its political aims. And often uh, they've seen this as a way of winning wars without actually having to fight them. Now the big turning point of that of course was the Russia's seizure of Crimea where they used disinformation misinformation campaigns against the west to pull off this spectacular strategic win with only a few shots fired and only one fatality and that was an accident so they've been looking for ways that they can do it again and of course that's building on a long tradition of Russia using information and subversion and agents of influence in foreign capitals to get their way this goes back not just through Soviet times but also through Tsarist times as well. And then there's a second element to this. Why does this involve the West at the moment when supposedly it's just a war between Russia and Ukraine? Well, Russia sees Ukraine as the outpost of the West. And of course, the reason for triggering this war was Ukraine slipping out from under Russia's control and joining the West, which was intolerable to President Putin. He wants to reconstitute the Russian empire. He said that he wants to correct the catastrophic mistakes when that empire fell apart. And Ukraine isn't the war. It's just the first of Russia's wars. It's to everybody's benefit that it's currently going spectacularly badly for Russia.
0: Why do you think this war has gone so badly for them in terms of their control of information coming out of Ukraine?
1: The information capabilities were one of those aspects of how Russia fights wars that simply don't seem to have worked on this occasion. There were so many Russian capabilities that we thought were going to overwhelm the Ukrainian defenses, not just in terms of simple numbers of tanks, but also things like electronic warfare, air power, where Russia was expected to have total air supremacy in the first hours of the conflict. And none of these things have actually gone right for Russia. Information capabilities and information operations is just another one of them. And that comes down to two main reasons. First of all, there was the preparation for the conflict. All of the intelligence releases that we saw from the US, from the UK, trying to persuade Europeans that this invasion was actually going to happen, laid the groundwork for people not being willing to listen in to Russian disinformation and misinformation. Everybody knew already what was going to happen. So the Russian spin on events just didn't get traction in the West more broadly. But there are other deeper elements to it as well, where help to Ukraine ahead of the conflict actually neutralized a lot of those Russian advantages. Cyber warfare, which for Russia is an integral part of this information campaign. There's no artificial distinction between disinformation and information operations that have worked against computers. Cyber warfare was another area where there was expected to be a huge Russian campaign that would be very successful and would cripple Ukrainian defenses. But because Ukraine was prepared for it and prepared for rooting out all of the Russian malware that had already been embedded in critical systems, the impact was fairly limited. And most of all, the impact was contained largely to Ukraine. You didn't have incidents like the NotPetya virus from 2017, which spilled over from the Russian argument with Ukraine and caused billions of dollars worth of damage around the world. But it's not even over there. There's a third aspect of this uh, that Russia attempted but failed to do, and that's the information interdiction. Uh, What Russia wants to do is try to prevent the target audiences, the people living in the conflict zone where it wants to make territorial gains from actually achieving, actually reaching any form of information that doesn't come from Russia. And this is the reason why in the early hours of the conflict, Russia attacked Ukraine's civilian telecommunications infrastructure, trying to take out Internet links in order that Ukraine couldn't communicate with its citizens with the outside world. But again, Ukraine was prepared. The Viasat hack, which uh, which targeted so many um, domestic modems, ordinary people's ability to connect to the Internet, was responded to rapidly. And again, the damage was contained. That's the reason why so much of what's happening in cyber in the Russia-Ukraine war is actually largely invisible to the rest of the world. And a lot of people are thinking that there's not a lot going on.
0: It sounds like Ukraine has one of the most sophisticated cyber defense systems in the world. and, And this kind of happened overnight. How deeply is this a result of Western support? And how much is it a result of kind of homegrown learning homegrown experience in the wake of 2014?
1: It's a little of both now of course that cyber capability is one of the areas where Ukraine is in a hugely different position from 2014, where they were effectively uh, defenseless against the against the Russian assault on the east of the country and the seizure of Crimea, not just because of the atrophy of the armed forces, but because of the close integration of the internet and information systems between Russia and Ukraine. Russia didn't really need to do a great deal of hacking in Ukraine because they were already in the systems. And in fact, there were a lot of uh, Ukrainian civil service, just to give you one example, that we're using Russian email servers. You don't need to break in if you're actually having all of the information you want on your own server. Now, that, of course, has been addressed as a vulnerability by Ukraine over the eight years since then, with help from abroad, so that they're in a completely different situation now to them.
0: What has the West done over the last eight years? Surely this isn't the one-way street. Has the West ever retaliated in kind?
1: it's far more of a one-way street than a lot of people assume. There are a lot of constraints on Western countries actually striking back against the, the malign influence, the subversion, the malicious disinformation campaigns, partly because, of course, it's completely incompatible with, with Western morals and values. So when, for example, Russia mounts a campaign against a country um, that supports anti-vaccine conspiracies in order that they, they trigger a public health crisis in that country, even before we had that pandemic. They were busily at this. This is not something that any Western country is going to be reflecting back at Russia in order to try to harm ordinary people, innocent civilians in Russia itself. But then over and above that, you've also got the problem that Russia has been prepared for this conflict, for this competition for so long. And they've put a lot of defenses in place to try to prevent anybody reaching into Russian society from outside the country. That's not just the censorship. It's not just the uh, the way in which they put these soft filters on people accessing information from outside the country on the Internet. But also now with this accelerating crackdown that you see in Russia, it's actually a criminal offense to repeat some of the information that is coming from outside the country that doesn't agree with the official line from Russia after all this is a country which from time to time over its history has has been so concerned about ideas and opinions coming in from from the outside world that it's banned completely the the import or ownership of foreign books and that's an unbroken russian tradition which has come through soviet times right down to the present day now that president putin has insisted with russian internet service providers that they put in place those unworkable constraints and controls on what people can actually access.
0: How seriously do you take the threat of tactical nuclear weapons used in Ukraine? Is that more misinformation or something that we should be worried about?
1: The threat of nuclear use is a major part of the Russian disinformation campaign. All of the rhetoric, all of the threats that we hear from Russia, from President Putin on downwards right through the state media, gets a lot of traction in the West and gets an excited reaction every time it comes out, mostly because people forget this is an absolutely standard, routine part of Russian political rhetoric that we've heard so many times before. And it comes out at the same point every time. It's when Russia wants a little bit more freedom of movement, a latitude, to, latitude of operations to do something without anybody else interfering. And they'll carry on making these threats for as long as they get that same very gratifying response. But also people forget that uh, what Putin says every time is very different from what Russia's own nuclear doctrine and when they would actually find some military use in using a nuclear weapon. States. So that's, uh, that's another point to bear in mind, not only is this an empty threat, which is trotted out on an absolutely routine basis. But actually, if you think about the the point of using a nuclear weapon for Russia, there isn't one.
0: The Conservative MP Damien Collins has been at the forefront of the British attempts to combat Russian cyber attacks, and try and increase online safety. I'm fascinated to get his perspective, as he's someone whose view actually will shift policy. I wanted his take about the grey area between cyber
3: warfare and conventional war. We don't yet have a good set of uh, rules of engagement for, if you like, digital warfare. Be that, you know, state-sanctioned disinformation campaigns, or um, you know, or, or cyber warfare looking to interfere in systems in other countries. You know, what is what is. Um, allowed, what is not allowed, what is a proportionate response to that. I, I think that is that is an aspect of modern warfare that doesn't really have any rules yet. And we've seen the, Rus- you know, the Russians uh, and the Chinese are involved constantly in looking to disrupt the systems uh, of companies and, uh, and other countries around the world using digital technology. Um, and I think it, it depends on what the messaging is. So for looking at disinformation pro- as, a, as a propaganda tool, um, there are different audiences for that. And I think one of the things I think we sometimes forget is that what I think is particularly true at the moment is that often the primary audience for Russian state disinformation, even when it's targeting other countries, is the Russian public. You know, it is to make other countries look weak and divided and, and their leaders look corrupt, you know, so that people are less questioning of, of the leadership they have uh, back at home. It also dep- it might depend on the action as well. I mean, I, um, someone described to me... The difference between like, traditional marketing and military disinformation might be that if uh, in traditional marketing you wanted to sell a brand of, um, of mineral water, you might talk about its provenance or how digitally refreshing it is. You would try and encourage people to buy it because by, based on the superiority of the product. In a war situation, you might persuade someone to buy bottled water by telling them not that it's wonderfully refreshing, but that the water in the water system has been poisoned. Uh, and therefore, you will die if you drink it. You know, so you know, so, so there, there are, and, and I mean, disinformation has been used war to encourage people to behave in certain ways, you know, to, to encourage people to, you know, to believe that one place is safe or another place is dangerous, uh, that one community is good and another community is bad. Uh, and that is, I think, how disinformation is used by the Russians in these wars. After years of looking at Russian
0: misinformation campaigns, what are the Russian tactics that you look out for and how can they
3: inform their future actions? Well, I think the, the Russian tactics are, are relatively simple in a way. Well, I say that now, I think, because we've become so familiar with the way disinformation networks work. So it's about it's recognising that the algorithms of social media platforms can be externally gamed. That you can, so if you set up a, a, a built, full of, full of building full of people operating... Bot accounts on Twitter, in pers- trying to impersonate real people or behaving like real people, but they act as a group. Then they can help set certain topics to trend. They can help make certain ideas trend. They can also pile in in support of ideas that they agree with. And you see this, I think, increasingly with the Russians now that they won't necessarily go to the trouble of setting up fake accounts. They'll look to identify people's views which are consistent with the narrative that the russians wish to put out so if you take the view for example on the war in ukraine that uh nato expansion has provoked russia to act in the way that it has acted plenty of western commentators you know uh, have have suggested that is the case um and then you sort of say well we'll amplify that we'll get these fake accounts to boost these things that people are saying that we happen to agree with as well. And they'll use their own embassy network and people linked to the Russian state to boost and amplify those messages, as well as using fake accounts to do it. So they're looking to amplify pro-Russian voices and and pro-Russian narratives. So around the war, that will be things that justify um, the invasion, that may in the future justify the use of chemical weapons by falsely claiming that the Ukrainians have used them first. By claiming that the, the Ukrainians are Nazis by, you know, we saw there was lots of footage of Ukrainians welcoming the Nazis as liberators during, in the Second World War uh, that was, was pushed out there. Now, that's all being done as part of a deliberate strategy. So sometimes it's about trying to push narratives that the Russians are, are favourable to. Other times, though, it can just be, and I think this is often a case with disinformation strategies, is they're not necessarily looking to persuade you that certain falsehoods are absolutely fact. They might be looking to leave you in a position where you don't really quite know what to believe anymore, and you don't trust the media. You know? So you don't, and I think the the main the so-called mainstream media, as it gets called, is you know not just the Russian disinformation, but lots of disinformation campaigns is often the target, which is to say you, know, you can't trust the state media. Um, you know there there are lots of counter narratives online, some of which could be true, some of which might not be true. And the audience then is left not knowing what to believe. So in the case of Ukraine, they might look to say, well, you know, I may not totally th- agree with uh, what Putin has said. I don't, don't think there was any justification for invading Ukraine. But oh, I, seem to, I seem to see lots of stuff online that suggests Ukraine is full of lots of bad people and does bad things. And therefore, you know, it's not surprising the Russians, you know, that they've, they've poked the Russian bear once too often. And therefore, it's not surprising the as they have done. And, and Russia would regard an outcome like that as perfectly acceptable.
0: I've got to ask about the the online safety bill um, that that is, is potentially coming in. How do you think that this will change the game when it comes to
3: dealing with um, with Russian misinformation? Well, so, so I think the, the the most important thing the online safety bill does is create liabilities and responsibilities for the social media companies themselves. So, you know, and I think so. There is a you know, there is a question that if you see, um, uh, you know. We find evidence that the Russians are buying ads to target voters in the UK or citizens in the UK to spread disinformational propaganda. What obligations are the to, of the social media companies to take those accounts down or we'll take will take those ads down? That's and I think that's where the online safety bill can be helpful. If we see them, you know, uh, spreading, um, you know, clearly, you know, extreme disinformation, maybe um, totally fake uh, films, you know, deep fake films uh, about incidents that didn't happen, if we see that content being spread or we see content being spread that, that glamorises terrorism and, um, uh, and, and extreme violence, then it's not just a question of saying, well, that the offence has been committed by an agency in St. Petersburg, but there's not very much we can do about it because we can't get them to take it down. Um, it would be saying to, to companies like Facebook in that situation, OK, it's clearly been proven that these networks exist. They've been operated inauthentically in a foreign country. It's in breach of your platform policies and it's in breach of the online safety bill. And you've got to take this stuff down. And so I think what it what it will help, help create is a more proactive regime where companies are required by a regulator to be actively seeking out content like this and to act much more swiftly, both when they find it or if it's reported to them by others.
0: I'm glad people finally seem to be taking cybersecurity and the threat posed by aggressive state actors seriously. I do worry, though, that even the laws designed to protect us against this could be manipulated by Western leaders. But at times i found this narrative that the West wouldn't kind of debase itself with misinformation and divisive online campaigns slightly hard to believe. After all, accusations around Donald Trump's involvement in inciting the Capitol riots remain unanswered. There are also questions that remain around NATO. Many outside of the West would argue that, as a military extension of Western power, they do, no matter how peaceful they are in comparison to Russia, pose an intrinsically belligerent and antagonistic force. We'll be looking at NATO next week, and whether history can tell us whether they're a force for protection or actually just containment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Emily Taylor, Keir Giles, and Damien Collins. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi and Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.